You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I sit down to chat with Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly is the CEO of Investment Management Associates and is the author of The Little Book of Sideways Markets. During the episode, I chat with Vitaly about how COVID-19 changed the game of value investing, what Vitaly looks for in the companies he invests in, how he thinks about the discount rate in his valuation process, why buying great companies might not be the best investment strategy, whether a portfolio of 100% stocks can give investors a well-balanced portfolio, and much, much more. Without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Vitaly Kassanelson. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's show, I'm joined by Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly, welcome to the show. Clay, how are you? I am fantastic. I'm very excited to dive into today's topic of value investing. Before we dive in, could you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? So I came to United States from Russia in 1991, which was December 4th, which has basically been here for 30 years and a month. And uh, so we moved to Denver. And in my early 20s, I got very lucky because I realized that I want to be an investor. And because I was like in my early 20s, it's kind of, I had this lazy focus. I knew exactly what I need to do. So I got my undergraduate degree in finance and graduate degree in finance from CU Denver. I live in Denver. Then I got my CFA. And uh, from that point on, I was just, I enjoyed IMA in 1997. IMA is the firm I'm a CEO of now. So I've been here for 24 years. And over the last 10, 12 years, I kind of remade the firm to be what it is today. So we are basically a value investment firm. And our clients are high net worth individuals that come to us and say, here's my life savings. Please don't screw it up. And I wrote a few investment books in the process. I think I wrote a Active Value Investing in, uh, 19, in 2007. And then in 2010, I wrote The Little Book of Sideways Markets. If you were going to read one of my books, I would recommend The Little Book just because it's a more elegant version of the active value investing. It's more simplified version of the active value investing. So. You are a value investor like many of us at TIP. Could you talk to us about how COVID-19 has changed the game of value investing? So it's kind of interesting. I would argue that it hasn't. The value investment principles have not really changed. And what is value investing? It's basically, I wrote this, what I call six commandments of value investing. So anyway, six commandments of value investing, I'll mention a few. When you buy stocks, you're buying businesses, not pieces of paper. This is important because now it turns you into an investor from speculator or gambler. 
you're looking for margin of safety. That hasn't changed. You have a long-term time horizon. That hasn't changed. And there are some other commandments. So that's what value investing is about. It's a, it's a set of principles. So the principles have not changed. What has changed, I would argue, is kind of economic landscape. It has shifted. But one thing that I myself was questioning in March of 2020, and now I'm fairly certain about that it has not changed, is the human, as humans, we want to be around other humans. So like in March 2020, during lockups, I was questioning, are we going to have hugs and, and handshakes after the economy reopens? How is the economy going to change? Are we going to be kind of a more digitized? I know it sounds silly now, but at the time, this was, you know, Bill Gates was on CNN. They were asking this kind of questions because people really were not sure, no matter what the, you know, was going to happen with the virus, we still want to be around other human beings. And the reason it's important because when you analyze companies, that's something you want to have in the back of your mind. But I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples where things might have changed and where things haven't. Think about travel. So the leisure travel, we know that hasn't changed. Like once economy normalizes, once we kind of become more comfortable with a pandemic, leisure travel will come back to normal. What may change is the business travel. Because we, what we have discovered that some of the business meetings now don't need to be in person anymore. They can take place over Zoom. If I owned airline companies, which I don't, I would be concerned about this because, yes, business travel is about only 12% of the revenues, but it's a much larger portion of the profit pool because it's much higher margin uh, dollars. So that would be an example. Another one I'm struggling with today is remote work. People are going to work from home. Are they going to be working in the office? And I'm still confused about this, but let me tell you how I think about it. I think a lot of the work in the past, like so, so if you work in the call center, now you have the tools, digital tools, that you don't need to be in a call center anymore. And if you think about call centers in general, right? It's just basically, it's a huge warehouse, which has summer conditioning, and you have thousands of people packed next to each other in cubicles, and it's a very noisy environment. And there is very little value in all of these people being in the same place. That's one extreme. Another extreme, if you are a company that, you know, that's very creative, and a lot of value is created, is when people bump into each other in the hallways, then there is actually value in being together, right? So I think you have these two extremes, and I think the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle. Maybe some jobs where interaction between employees is not very important, you're going to have a lot more of those jobs than work from home. A lot of creative jobs, it's either going to be a hybrid environment, or it's always going to be like, you know, you have to come to the office. And even at my company, my folks said, well, we kind of would like to be a work from home sometimes. And I found a very interesting compromise. Instead of saying, we're going to be you know, like four days a week from the office and one, you know, one week from home, I said, everybody gets so many days a year, they can, they can work from home. It's a great benefit because if somebody goes on vacation and they want to spend another three days in, you know, on vacation, they can just work remotely. That's how we think about it. But my point is, when you are analyzing today's economy, you want to be very nuanced about it because some things have changed, some things haven't. And when you break things up into little bits, and be nuanced about it. I think I can look at each company and say, how has the business changed? I think that's the right approach. That's how we kind of adjust in our strategy in today's environment. How has the trend to work from home affected the businesses you're looking at? Is it certain industries that are being affected or are there specific businesses where this comes up? You know, it's came up with 
when we were looking at office real estate. And to me, I put it into too difficult category because first of all, we already had overcapacity in office real estate just before the pandemic. The prices were sky high. We had too, too much over, we had plenty of overcapacity. And now we know the demand will be less. However, one thing I started to see is that they started to convert some of the better locations into apartment buildings. So it's going to be kind of one stock at a time analysis. But so far, I have zero investments in that space. But that would be one example. I'm sure there are plenty of others. Now, the value investing principles in theory seem very simple. But in practice, I think it's very difficult for a lot of people, myself included. You'll hear over and over again from people like Warren Buffett and other value investors to buy great businesses at reasonable prices. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on that idea with you and its two key parts, great businesses and reasonable prices. Could you tell us what it takes for a business to qualify as a great business for you? So in the beginning, I talked about value investment principles. Think of it as a, like those are philosophical principles. A lot of times, value investing is confused with buying statistically cheap stocks. In other words, if you finish kindergarten and you know how to count 10, then you can be a value investor because all you have to do, statistical value investor, because all you have to do is buy companies that traded less than 10 times earnings. I wish it was that simple. It's not. So Ben Graham, the father of value investing, when he started out, there was a lot less competition there was a lot less IQ in the market and there was a lot fewer computers, probably no computers at the time or very few computers. So he could be a statistical value investor and do absolutely great. I think the, being a statistical value investor, kind of all this computing power made this impossible. So therefore, what you have to do, you have to default to the principles. And the whole point is that you want to buy companies that are undervalued. However, let's talk about this. Let me give you two examples. And I'm going to oversimplify them just for simplicity. Okay, so you can poke a lot of holes in these examples, but again, I'm oversimplifying just to make a point. You have a no growth company, okay, that trades at $5 and it has $1 of earnings today. And three years from now and five years from now, it's going to have $1 of earnings. So you think that the fair value of this company is $10 or so should be trading 10 times earnings, right? So, in other words, if you buy this company at $5, at some point, it will get to $10. The problem is you don't know when. If it happens today, like in one year, you're going to have a 100% return. If it happens in 10 years, again, I'm oversimplifying, you're going to have a 10% a year. I'm ignoring compounding. Okay? If it happens over five years, so what you discover that the time is not on your side. The faster that happens, the more money you're going to make uh, annualized. Now, you have another company that's trading at, it's a $10 stock, and it has a wonderful earnings, but it's growing earnings, let's say, 20% a year. Again, I'm, let's oversimplify it. So another, again, I'm, in five years, it would make half two dollars of earnings. Earnings would double. So from that perspective, the first company doubles in five years, and this company doubles in five years, you should not really care. However, the time is on your side if you own the growth company, because if you own for 10 years, that would be making 20% a year. If you own the first company or you own it for 10 years, the longer you own it, the less money you make per year, right? So the point I'm trying to make is that the first the second company, the growth company appears to be overvalued on the surface, or it appears to be statistically less cheap. In reality, there is a value in the growth of those earnings. And that was basically the transition of Warren Buffett from kind of no growth companies to identifying companies that have three characteristics, basically. 
they, are, they have a significant competitive advantage, they have high return capital, and they have a long runway for growth. And he was buying them at a at discount to their fair value, though it, they might have looked more expensive on the surface if you look at the, this year's earnings. But if you look far enough, they weren't expensive. So the way we deal with this in, at IMA, what we do, we always look, when we analyze companies, we look at the earnings four to five years out. And we do that so both companies, no growth company, growth companies could fit into our framework. Because that means the company that's not growing earnings, for it to be attractive, we would have to buy it maybe not a 50% discount per value, but maybe 70% discount. Therefore, if it takes a longer period of time to come to fair value, then we'll get compensated extra for that risk. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Given that the world is moving as fast as ever, have you found it more difficult to ensure that the companies you are buying have a sustainable competitive advantage? That is a great question. I think it requires a lot more research. And it requires for you to have more complex models, like mental models. But then, then we also look at things that don't change. Some things do change, but, uh, but we, we, a lot of times we start with what things won't change. So I'll give an example, and we'll talk about it later again. But the, we own defense companies. 
that's not going to change. There was a, there will be changes inside the sector, but because of the industry structure, these companies, they will be spending less money on one type of warfare, but we're spending more money on other type of warfare. And st- that business is still going to be based in those companies. So it is an example. So we're looking for things that won't change. And things where they will change, we need to have a much, much greater discount. And we try to focus on things that, we try to focus mostly on companies where things will not change very much. So what are the most important metrics you look at when you're analyzing a company? So from a high level, what we want to do, we want to buy high quality businesses, we want to buy them under value. What does it mean, high quality? Again, high level. It means company that has significant competitive advantage, company that has strong balance sheet, and company that has a great management. And when I say great management, I have to break it up again. It's a management that's good at allocating capital and running the business. And, good, right? and so what I find, and this is, I'll give you one, like a little nuance. When you look at smaller companies, I spend a lot more time on how well they run the business. When I look at larger companies, I spend more time how well they allocate capital. Again, I'm just giving you extremely generalized answers, right? Because it's really going to be different from every single company. If it's a company that's not, not growing much, capital allocation becomes a lot more important. So it's a, I wish I could say, this is the number. This is the formula. But there is, you know, it's really just, you have to you analyze business, you know, kind of one business at a time. And for each business, something else, you know, what's important for one business will not be important for that. You mentioned looking at the incentives of the management. How do you ensure that management's incentives are aligned with shareholders? I think the ownership of the stock is very important. I mean, that's a, when I see a company where the CEO owns 20% of the company, I know that whenever, if they make another acquisition, they're spending their, you know, his money. Like we, we, it's kind of interesting when we, when we talk internally about management, we talk about professional management, which is a little bit oxymoron because it's somebody who comes in, who has a great pedigree, who looks perfect for the end of report. And that's the guy who probably will make the acquisition that's going to destroy value because his time horizon is uh, how long he's going to be in the CEO seat, a lot of times three to five years, and the problems will come five, years, five or 10 years later, and kind of own operator. And we would love to own companies, and we have owned a lot of them that's run by own operators kind of guys. And in a, if you can find a company that has, kind of has a strong competitive advantage, high return capital, high growth runway, and run by own operator, then you can basically buy this company and own it for a long, long time. So in other words, my self-discipline is going to be a lot more relaxed. Again, it doesn't mean I'm not going to have one, but I'm going to give them a much longer leash, that company a much longer leash than it would, would, if, if it's a company run by professional management. Again, I'm generalizing. What do you find about life and investing? Nuance is very important. Now let's dive more into the valuation side. One of the most difficult parts of valuing a business is determining a discount rate. Do you use a discount rate in your stock valuation process? And if so, how do you determine that discount rate? Without going into specifics, what we do, our discount rate is really a function of company's quality. The higher the quality of the company, the everything else being constant, the lower is the discount rate and the lower the quality, the higher the discount rate. Because if it's a very high quality company, fewer things may go wrong. And therefore, we have a high confidence in this company's earnings power. 
the lower the quality, the larger discount we need because there are more things may go wrong with, you know, with the earnings, uh, more risk. And the earnings power is at risk as well. But again, it's a, like we focus on high quality companies. So in general, so difference between high quality and lower quality for us is much lower than, you know, so if it's, if it's company, just it's a, if it's a crappy company, we just don't buy it. That makes sense. And I came across this idea when doing research on you in the past. You've talked about how buying great companies might not be a good investing strategy. Why do you believe that to be the case? Well, it's a first level thinking and second level thinking. First level thinking is something that's basically almost comes to automatic. I'll give you a company and you say, great company. Amazon, great company. Microsoft, great company. PayPal, and keep going. And the problem is, Everybody knows that, that those are great companies, and therefore, they're usually priced accordingly. But the problem is, those companies may be great companies. Those, in other words, you would want to work for them, but it doesn't mean that you want to own them as investments. And the reason for that, because for them to be great stocks, they have to offer you good long-term return. And the return comes from two factors, right? It's a, I'm going to put dividends aside for a second, but it's a, for the stock price. It's really earnings growth and change in price to earnings. If those companies are very expensive, and a lot of the earnings growth will be consumed by price to earnings compression at some point. Over the last 10 years, they didn't matter because price to earnings only went up. But at some point, we already saw this happen to a lot of great companies. We are talking over Zoom, and Zoom is down, I don't know, 70% since its highs. Even though so it's, a, it's a still a good company, it's just it wasn't a great stock when it was at, you know, much higher. And I'm not even sure you know, if it's a still good stock today or not. So you have to differentiate between a good company and a good stock. And a good stock is basically has to do with what's the expected return when company's growth rate kind of normalizes. The first company that comes to my mind is Tesla. I think some people will just buy Tesla stock just because they believe that Tesla is a great company without realizing the level of success that they'll need to achieve in the future in order to give investors even a reasonable return. See, I have a Tesla car, a Tesla Model 3, and we have another one on order. And I got to tell you, I love the car. Like every single time I drive it, I receive joy from it. Actually, I wrote a kind of a mini book. If your readers want to look it up, they can find it on Amazon. It's three dollars. But the, um, when I bought my Model 3, I basically was so impressed by this car that I ended up doing a lot more research. And this was two years ago. And I realized that electric cars are the future. It's to me, it's a, there's no question in my mind. And then one thing I did not know at the time, how that, who are going to be the big players. And at the time, I wasn't even sure that Tesla's future was not guaranteed. I knew the company would be around, but as an investment, it was losing a lot of money and it was very past dependent. Could you tell our audience about the importance of developing a process to challenge your own beliefs? That is a, such a great question. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, he has this saying, which I love, time discovers truth. And that applies to investing so much because whenever I'm buying a company, I'm basically betting on a certain version of the future. And time will basically will discover it for me. So my goal is to be right you know, and to make money. And if facts over time change, then the future will change. And then you, know, you really want to be 
as objective as possible. And uh, let me give you this analogy from chess. If you ever watch a very good players analyze their games, at some point, they stop saying, oh, like uh, myself versus another player. They're going to say white versus black. And the point is, they stop linking the whites to them or blacks to them. And now they're just looking for what are the best moves, okay? So it's, they're looking for that objectivity. So when you look at your portfolio and you basically say, okay, when I bought it, this, this is what I expected from the economy or whatever, or from this company. Now I'm looking at it again. Is that, are my assumptions still correct, et cetera? So that is extremely, extremely important. And we try to do this all the time. You're a big advocate of having a more balanced investment approach that is able to weather all storms. What investments have you found that you expect will be able to hold its buying power if inflation persists through the coming years? Our approach is very, somewhat different from, from mutual funds or many other investors because people come to us and say, here's my life savings, don't screw it up. So like, I'll give you an example. I have a client who is a doctor and he literally gave us $1.5 million of his wealth. So that's all he's ever going to make. So when I make these investments for him, it's a very different approach because all I'm trying to do is to grow his wealth through any environment. And so the approach is different. So I think it's a much higher, it's not, it's not 100% certainty, but much higher probability that we're going to have inflation. That inflation we have today will persist into the future. The rate of inflation, I don't know what it's going to be. And the, you can argue that some of the inflation we have today is temporary. And that's probably true. But I would argue that some of that is here to stay. So maybe the inflation that's driven by supply chains is you know, temporary. But inflation that's driven by higher wages, I thought it would be temporary in the beginning. But because I thought that was temporary because government was paying people not to work. But even when that ended, we found that the wages kept going higher and higher. You know, people, the workforce has shrunk. And I heard a lot of explanations for that. And maybe this is just a perfect storm of many different factors, like baby boomers retiring. That's one explanation. The explanation I heard that the pandemic was a wake-up call for a lot of people, and now they don't want the dead-end jobs. I don't know. So anyway, so there was many other factors. There, you know, and then there are many other factors. So the reason labor is very important because labor is the most, the largest expense line on almost any company's income statement. So if you have inflation and wages keep going higher, it's impossible not to have inflation. That's point number one. Point number two, over the last, during the pandemic, we basically increased our balance sheet by 40%. The, the amount of debt US has went up a lot. And the problem is debt has already been going up. And this is important to understand. In the past, after World War II, U.S. They had a lot of debt on, on its balance sheet. And after World War II, the debt has been declining. While we were investing in rebuilding the country, while we were rebuilding Europe, over the last 10 years, our debt has been growing while the economy was growing as well. And if you look very closely, you'll find that a lot of this growth came from us borrowing more money. So in other words, that was part of the reason why the economy was growing. So now we have 130% debt to GDP, which is the highest we ever had, and we're still adding more to that. The US, we are beneficiary of the fact that US dollar is still reserve currency. But I would argue that over a long time, we'll become 
it's not a binary. It's not like being a stab in a reserve currency, but it's just going to have less and less allocation to us as a reserve currency. Like you would argue 20 years ago, it was very clear that US dollar should be reserve currency. Today, if you look at our behavior, you, know, you would, I would question it somewhat. And not just me, the other investors, you know, it doesn't matter what I think, it's just it matters what the rest of the world thinks of us. The reason that's important is that I think if the US dollar declines, that means we're going to have higher inflation because the goods we'll be buying overseas will be more expensive to us. Now, I'm going to give you this, give you this macro background. So when you are positioning your portfolio for inflation, you want to make sure that you own companies that have pricing power. You want to own companies that have high fixed costs and low capital expenditures. Let me explain you what I mean by this. Let's say you, you own pipeline companies, you know, companies that transport natural gas, for instance. So when you look at these companies, they have very high fixed costs and maintaining pipeline, the cost to maintain pipeline are very, relatively small. So if you have inflation, their fixed costs won't change very much. However, what is going to happen is that their agreements with their customers are structured in a way that as you have inflation, they're able to raise prices. And therefore, the revenues will be going higher, while costs will be going higher, but maybe very, very little. So they will actually be a net beneficiary of inflation. So, yeah, so this is one example of this. And obviously, you want to buy them when they're undervalued, right? So I just would describe, describe you at first was a quality of the business. But if it's overvalued, then it's not a good proposition. And today, actually, I would argue pipelines in general are still undervalued. So they're still a good investment today. So we own plenty of those. But anyway, that's how we think about this. Again, one example, it's going to be different from industry to industry. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable 
advanced and dynamically capable one yet and redefine sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Ray Dalio is well known for his all-weather portfolio that utilizes a number of uncorrelated asset classes. Do you believe it is possible to have a well-balanced portfolio only holding stocks? Yes, with a caveat. The caveat should be you have a long-term investment time horizon. This is extremely important because if you need money two years from now, you should have been stocks. And this is where it gets complicated because if you and I talked 20 years ago, I would have told you, and you are, I don't know, 67 years old or something, I would say, well, you, you could probably, should probably have a balanced approach. And in that case, when I say balanced, meaning you should have this much in bonds, this much in equities. At the time, bonds were yielding 5 or 6%, so inequities were returning 10 11%. So bonds provided you predictability, and they did not have volatility of principle. And th- this is important. So as an equity investor, I accept that the, my, my stocks will be volatile. I don't look at it as, you know, if I have a long-term time horizon, that's not a risk. In fact, in fact I, would ask, I would argue it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. But there is an assumption here that I have a long-term time horizon. If I have a short-term time horizon, then actually that volatility turns into risk, right? Because if you, have a, if you need $50,000 to pay for your daughter's wedding in six months and the stock market declines, well, that loss you have stops being temporary, becomes permanent. So the problem is, and we are kind of in this incredibly, like I'm running out of adjectives because we are this insane environment where everything is overvalued. So buying bonds today, especially long-term bonds, makes zero sense. So what I tell clients that come to us and they need money at some point in the near future, look at your portfolio from a barbell approach. Like, you know, put five or, you know, take five or seven years of your expenses and put them into short-term bonds or something very short-term cash-like instruments. And then you can give us your loan term. Then, you know, then we will, the equity portfolio is going to be there to provide you loan term returns. So, and then there we can construct a diversified portfolio. And when I say diversified, let me just clarify this too. Traditional diversification is basically, as Warren Buffett would say, is like constructing Noah's Ark. And uh, when you do this, you end up having a zoo. That's not how we do things. We are basically, I want to have companies like if I add something to the portfolio, I'm not, I'm not going to buy it just because it's different from something else I own. It's great if, it's has a, if it's different from other things I own, but most importantly, it has to have a good return profile. So, and so what I try to do, we, we kind of build a matrix and say, what are the risks that we can identify? And we want to make sure that when we build a portfolio, we have our companies, I don't want to have the whole all portfolio exposed to one risk. So that's how we you know, diversify to make sure they can withstand different risks. If, you know, what if dollar declines? What if dollar goes up? What if interest rates go up and down? This kind of thing. 
So um, how much exposure do you have to China? Oh, you know, this kind of thing. So low, higher commodity, commodity prices. That's how we construct portfolio. And I think you can do this. And uh, over the last couple of years, as US market has gone up and it was, became more and more difficult to find values in the US, we started to buy more and more foreign stocks. So today, I think about one third of our portfolio is actually in foreign stocks. Now that you mentioned international stocks, we're seeing the rise of China as a big player in the global economy. And I know that you like to invest internationally. As a value investor, how do you think about China's rise as a global powerhouse and how might it affect the financial markets? Yeah, I I wrote this very long article on the subject. So I'm going to try to condense a six-page article into six sentences. I'll see if I can. I think we are... Uh, Henry Kissinger said, we are basically the, in the beginning of Cold War with China, or the valley of Cold War, or something like that, with China. It's a different type of Cold War that we had with the United States, had with Russia. Because at the time, that was ideological. This is a little bit different. But if you think about that Cold War of the 90s and 80s, I guess 70s as well, you had these two gravitational centers. You had the West and Soviets. And or Soviet bloc, right? And then you had the Western Europe on this side, and you had Poland and Czechoslovakia and a whole bunch of other countries around, and China and India on this side. So you had these two gravitational poles. This time around, you're going to have something similar, but what's going to differentiate these poles is going to be the technology. And this is where it gets weird. China uses technology as a weapon. Over the last 10, 15 years, we had an incredible transition in technology. And big data, Internet of Things, all these things, the data is kind of become a new oil. And China is already using data to control its citizens. And we are looking at China, we don't look at them. This is kind of a dictatorial country, not a democracy for sure. And it's rising in power. If it was France or UK or some other European country where it's a democracy and we share similar values, was rising to power, we probably would not be as concerned about it, but it's China. In the People's North Republic, really, of China. So, therefore, we want to make sure that we are on the different technological platforms. And this is why you see, you know, like, why, uh, like as an example, you see Huawei, the Chinese, uh, one of the largest technology companies, has been completely stripped out, out of the Western Hemisphere. So, what's going to end up happening, you're going to have almost like two incompatible technological platforms the Western platform and the Chinese platform. And we know that Western Europe and the US will be in the same platform. India is going to be on the US platform. Russia probably going to join China. And by the way, ironically, China and Russia always had a border dispute, et cetera. They always had a very contentious relationship. Now they're, you know, I guess enemies, my enemies, my, my friend. So now they're much closer because I mean, they even have a joint military exercises. But then what's become interesting, you don't know where the Middle East is going to end up in some other country. So you, so you have this division and you already start seeing kind of the globalization that we experienced the last 20 years now been put in reverse. So you, we are looking at Taiwan and seeing that country is at risk of being invaded by China. So now you have uh, Samsung, well, no, Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel, Samsung, and many other countries bringing their production to the United States of semiconductors because that's too important for us. 
So the geopolitical situation today is probably the most contentious that we had over the last 30 years since Cold War ended. And one of the ways we're hedging that, which, you know, is we have a good chunk of the portfolio allocated to defense companies. And like you and I already talked about high quality means, let's just think about this for a second, right? These companies have customer that's always going to be there, even if it has to print money to be there, okay, the governments. They're going to have their growing the revenues and may accelerate the growth in revenues if, God forbid, you know, things get worse. They have a you know, decent return on capital, great cash flows, great balance sheets. And today we can actually, you know, they're non-cyclical. So it doesn't matter what happens if we have inflation, you know, if we have a recession or not. And European governments will continue to spend on defense. Therefore, and by the way, there's one misconception in the market that Democrats hate defense and Republicans love it. What we found, if you look at data, it really has nothing to do who is in the White House. It has to do with geopolitics. The defense spending has everything to do. It's not really, we have a Biden in the White House who is a Democrat and defense spending bill to, you know, higher this year than it was last year. And seeing what you've seen you know, with our relationship with China and Russia, I don't think our defense spending is going to decline. What's actually more interesting we own a lot of European defense companies because Europe over the years has underspent on defense because they were basically kind of free riding on the US. And now they look at the United States and especially after what happened in Afghanistan and they say, maybe we should be able to defend ourselves. So I think you know, spending in Europe is going up. Your, uh, UK increased the budget by 10% last year. So we own US and European companies, defense companies. We can buy them at very, very cheap, like, you know, especially considered not just on a relative basis, an absolute basis. I think they're very attractive. And some of them even pay very nice dividends. That's how we deal with, you know, with the China issue. And it's a hedge at the same time and cheap companies at the same time. Now you wrote the book, The Little Book of Sideways Markets. And you point out that history shows that a sideways market typically occurs after a secular bull market. With the role that the Federal Reserve plays in the financial markets, do you still anticipate valuations to normalize? Yes. When I wrote the book, what I did not anticipate is interest rates declining to basically zero or negative. And that decline added a lot of fuel to valuations. And they might went up much higher than I ever expected them to. So I would argue I was wrong on that. Again, if I knew that interest rates would be, you know, would be the slower, I probably would have written a different book. However, now that valuations are so high and interest rates are so low, and we have signs that inflation is here to stay, if interest rates continue to go up, it's going to be very difficult for the valuations to stay this high. A lot of companies could trade it in the same valuations because discount rate is so low. Now discount rate is higher. But what if interest rates don't go up? If they don't go up, we may have a different issue. We may have actually have a, in a very unpleasant recession or just you know, economic stagnation, like what happened in Japan. And what's important about what happened in Japan, valuations got very high, interest rates declined, but stock prices still collapsed. And you know, Japan was a kind of a nuclear winter of a stock market for 20 years until recently. So I think from this perspective, I think the value has a much greater tailwind than it ever had over the last 10 years. So if you were a value investor, you needed to have a great emotional support from your family. I think that's about to change. But yes, I think the price earnings are most likely to decline. In fact, if you carefully think about our conversation today, a lot of things is really just about inverting 
the things that helped us in the past, those things will hurt us in the future. Like price earnings, when they go up, it's a loan. It's not a gift. You have to pay it back. When you borrow money, it's literally a loan. It's not a gift. And so there was going to be a lot of mean reversion, a lot of paying back for the excesses of the last you know, uh, 10 years. So in, the, in other words, my little book of sideways markets is more relevant today than even when I wrote it 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Vitaly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and share your knowledge with our audience today. Before we close out the episode, can you share with the audience where they can go to get connected with you and learn more about your books? So I'll give you two places. And I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you're more likely to be listening to another reader. We have this Lazy Man's podcast, which is not as great as your podcast, but it's basically my articles read to you by somebody who's not me, does not have this beautiful Texas accent as I have. You can find it on investor.fm or just look for Intellectual Investor Podcast. And then you can read my articles on contrarianedge.com, contrarianedge.com. And there you can subscribe to get my articles by email. Because when you subscribe to get them by email, you also get my father's artwork. Uh, I discuss classical music and other things on this, in this article. So uh, I would argue subscribing to my article is probably better. And it's still free, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, yeah. Got it. I'll be sure to link both of those in the show notes. Vitaly, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Great questions. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.